Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have an amazing show for you today. Have I been saying amazing over and over again? I gotta come up with a new Every time you introduce the show. the show, Robbie, it feels fresh to me. Oh, oh well. <laughs> that's all that matters. That's all that matters. Good to see you, Brianna Joy Good Gray. To be back. What are we talking about this Tuesday morn? Well, yesterday, the Biden administration announced that it seeks to end the COVID-19 public health emergency on 11th, the 11th of this year, bringing a stop to programming that saw COVID tests, treatments and vaccines subsidized by the federal government for over three years. The White House's announcement comes just before House Republicans were set to vote on their own legislation, bringing an end to the health emergency called, quote, the Pandemic is Over Act. Well, now with the COVID emergency set to end, other programming at risk of expiring includes Title 42, which allowed immigration officials to expel migrants seeking asylum on the grounds of pandemic safety, as well as President Biden's signature federal student loan forgiveness. Both programs are currently tied up in the court. Now, some online critics have slammed the move as too little too late, one writing, quote, some emergency, that it can simply be ended on an arbitrary date several months down the road. The only purpose of such a years-long emergency is to bypass the legislature, an Orwellian farce. However, others say the order is ending too soon. One user wrote, quote, I don't see a single elected Democrat challenging Biden's end of the COVID public health emergency. Not Bernie, not Corey, not a peep. 500 plus people died yesterday. 500 plus people will die today. And not a peep from any elected in the lesser evil party. For shame. Hmm. That is interesting, actually, that point, that there is not a lot of opposition to uh, Biden ending the pandemic. There's plenty of Republican frustration that is not being ended quicker. But there's, uh, if there are people to Biden's left or in a more COVID-cautious mindset, I, I know those people exist. Uh, they, I, don't, I guess they don't exist in enough numbers to be really, to be politically um, uh, mobilized. Uh, they don't have, the Democratic elected officials who, in theory, might give voice to their concerns, like the people being mentioned there, the, you know, the more Dem socialist type people, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I, they don't speak about that or, or have committed to doing anything on that front. Yeah, so that second uh, tweet was from Dr. Stephen Thrasher, I believe, who was a, a Bernie-aligned person, um, uh, kind of a, a health, he writes about healthcare and viruses, no, mostly about HIV, but as a as a, has a broader book that came out, I believe, last year. And you see that kind of critique from the left all the time, because the left doesn't have any apprehension about criticizing mm -hmm. Joe Biden. What is so frustrating to many on the left is exactly that, that regardless of what Joe Biden does, because he's Joe Biden, Democrats tend to fall in line and offer absolutely no criticism. So take, for example, one of the arguable, if you're on the left, positive upsides of the end of this COVID emergency era is the end of Title 42, which, when Trump was president, liberals were furious about because it was a plan that was it was a it was a policy that was used to basically use COVID as an excuse to undermine our asylum laws, right? Kick people out of the country without giving them the opportunity, the the legal right to claim asylum. Biden continued that policy. Nobody cared, right? So that that's part of why some people on the left argue that they're better off, frankly, with a Republican in, in Congress. I'm sorry, in the White House, because ultimately you can have movements against the things that we believe in. Whereas Democrats tend to go back to sleep, or as as we used to say mm -hmm. back in 2016, go to brunch when there's a liberal in office. But don't you think it's interesting? You know, you bring up often, and and I concede that you're right uh, that you know some of the things that progressive want uh, progressives want are very popular and poll very well. That's something Bernie talks about. That's something AOC talks about. Um, clearly, 
this stuff, the continuing the pandemic stuff, it, it obviously isn't that popular because those same people, the progressives who embrace those policies and lead with how popular they are, are silent on this stuff. Yeah, I think part of the problem is that what, what is, what is going to change? For yeah. most people, what is their perception of what Biden has actually been doing that's positive in the context of pandemic awareness, pandemic protections? I mean, I talk all the time about this show, about how basically there's been, because of the mistakes that have been made by both the Biden and Trump administrations with respect to COVID, because of the misrepresentations from the CDC, the back and forth about mask efficacy, the overreach and the, the, mm -hmm. the, the overly strong claims about what the COVID vaccine was able to do. Some of it was just, we didn't know, and some of it is that they knew and they misled the public. All of that stuff has confused the conversation so that the stuff that we know works, the stuff that would actually be helpful to people being able to protect themselves outside of the context of mandates, et cetera, has completely fallen up by the wayside. And it's given Biden, the Biden administration, the ability to not send free masks to people who want them, not provide free COVID testing anymore in a way that people could actually use to protect themselves and is useful and meaningful, to, to not do more to put the same kind of ventilation protections in place, air quality protections in place, that the Richie Riches at Davos made sure that they had in place for themselves. And so, so all of the people who have anger at the Biden administration, I think some of it is right, but it's all about getting him to do less in the context of the mandates, instead of getting him to do the things that are not mandates and would be more. So now ending the program, since he wasn't doing anything affirmatively positive in the eyes of anyone, you know, he was doing too much to the right, he was doing not enough to the left, it's hard to, it's hard to be that well, angry Well, and this it. isn't going to end, as far as I can tell, this is not ending some things that I want to be ended. I, I was reading the news coverage of this, and I, I, I admit I'm not totally clear, you know, correct me in the, in the comments if you know differently, but my understanding is that this is not actually going to change the travel mandate mm. for, uh, to, to have to get vaccinated to come into this country unless you're a U.S. citizen, um, that that's done under a different authorization. Uh, I, again, I'm not completely, I was trying to research it and figure it out for certain. I, I hope it's the case that it's being ended. It should be ended today. It should have mm -hmm. been ended, it should have never existed in the first place. There's no justification for it. Uh, there is no public health threat from unvaccinated people coming into this country. They are, they are not at this, this greatly exaggerated risk of infecting other people. This kind of leper mindset of how the what, what the unvaccinated are like is just totally unscientific and unjustifiable. And as far as I, I, I can tell, is not actually being ended by this, uh, by this yeah, it looks like what was it, uh, Djokovic? Djokovic, who was who was banned. Yeah, we talked about him yesterday. From, yeah. He just he was just won the Australian yep. Open yep. <laughs> last yep. night, so yep. it's, it's obviously not hurting him, and it, it, that does seem to be yeah. like one Canada of the significant doesn't have this. steps. Our yeah. European peer countries don't have this. We are an outlier, and we are we are more COVID intense than many of our progressive peer countries on some fronts, not yeah. all fronts. And to be clear, and not doing things that actually could help people yeah. who are immunocompromised, et cetera, actually protect themselves and keep themselves safe, safe, and also. So things that are actually more connected to stopping the spread, mm -hmm. like testing and mask use, as opposed to vaccines, which mm -hmm. have uh, a limited ability to do so. Yeah. And then the one other thing I think is unknown is how this affects uh, student debt cancellation. The Biden administration has put out a statement saying that, because remember, the hook, the, the, the legislative hook for the executive authority to cancel student debt that Biden chose was this HEROES Act. So the idea that we're in an emergency period because of COVID. He says, the administration says that this is not going to negatively affect the, the process of uh, defending the, the, the policy and the courts right now. 
that remains to be seen. But it seems obvious. You know, you could have seen this from a mile away. We talked about it half a year ago, that it was a vulnerability to try to tie student debt relief to a COVID emergency when Biden himself around the same time was talking about how COVID was over. It puts these things like at odds, like, like people who support student debt cancellation, I'm, again, I'm not among them, but they would have to root for the pandemic to like continue or get worse in order to have the, the student loan cancellation it's be ridiculous. justified. That's, it's that's just, really it's dumb. Just, it's a bad faith argument. You're going to lose the public trust. Yeah. Like, and, and the fundamental problem with a lot of this COVID stuff, it's not that it's not an emergency, but the emergency wasn't about COVID. The emergency was about the fact that our country has been falling apart for years and a lot of kind of emergency services have been needed for folks for a long time. We were in a student debt crisis before COVID. COVID didn't bring on the emergency. We were in an immigration crisis before COVID. It didn't bring on the emergency. So I understand, given the legislative um, slog that exists trying to get anything passed in Congress, why people would try to use COVID as a hook to pass any number of things. But it, 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 there's, there's, there's political cost to doing something which mm -hmm. seems kind of backhanded. And at the end of the day, we have to get to the bottom of why there is this, this kind of legislative backlog and inability to do all of the popular, all of these popular things that so many Americans want. Well, and it's a, it's a concern that I and other libertarians have with the, you know, governing via public emergency mindset, whereas what is the stuff that doesn't get taken away? What is the stuff that stays in place? We saw that with 9-11 style, yeah. uh, um, emergent, we're in an emergency against terrorism, we're in an emergency against the countries of Afghanistan and Iraq, that, uh, that the national security, the powers that they claim for themselves uh, are never given back. That, yeah. you know, we still, I, I, I talk constantly about the ridiculousness with travel, but uh, but the the spying on Americans, the surveilling of Americans, yeah. um, the idea that every we have to participate in every conflict all over the world because national security is at stake and, and, and terrorists will will arise if we don't you know overthrow governments that we don't like and then terrorism does arise and then it's yeah, like oh it's, well it's, look, the, it's the shock doctrine. Yeah. This is what Naomi Klein talks about. It's the expansion of powers in an emergency mm -hmm. and unfortunately it's never expanded in the in the direction of the needs of the populace. It's people who are already in power claiming more for themselves. So um, we'll see if ending yeah. the COVID emergency causes it's any the, of those powers to be relinquished. It's, the, it's the Clone not. Wars doctrine. It's uh, <laughs> Chancellor Palpatine claims more powers for himself in the emergency that he created in order to become emperor. And he has the crocodile tears. He says, I love democracy. I'll certainly give back this power. Robbie, I could always count on you on making things accessible to the people by translating it through the lens of sci-fi. You love to see it. <laughs> Thank you, Brianna. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what's on my radar right after this. Bobby, what's on your radar today? Well, here's a hair-raising headline. Quote, the National Health Institute did not properly track a group studying coronaviruses, a report finds. The group in question is EcoHealth Alliance. And the, that's the controversial NGO at the center of the whole COVID lab leak gain of function debate. And the report in question was authored by the Office of the Inspector General for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Oh, and did I mention that that headline appeared in the New York Times? Even the gray lady and the Biden administration are raising concerns about reckless research and misappropriated federal funds at the organization studying bad coronaviruses at Wuhan, under Dr. Fauci's watch nonetheless. We should probably be afraid, very afraid. And in fact, both EcoHealth Alliance and the NIH made serious mistakes, according to the report and the New York Times write-up of it. 
On the NIH side, federal regulators fail to follow proper procedures and request necessary progress reports on EcoHealth's experiments on viruses. A scientist consulted by the New York Times called the report a, quote, damning indictment of the NIH. That was Lawrence Gostin, a public health law expert at Georgetown University, who advises the White House. He said the report shows, quote, grave errors in following NIH's own rules and also in just a diligent monitoring and oversight that the public would have expected. According to the report, the NIH specifically chose not to apply high-risk scrutiny to the grants the federal government was making to EcoHealth Alliance for research on bat coronaviruses. The NIH was supposed to do this additional review on research involving pathogens that could cause a pandemic, but they failed to do so with EcoHealth Alliance. One expert consulted by the Times said that instead of erring on the side of caution, the NIH erred on the side of complacency, on the side of turning a blind eye to how taxpayer dollars were being used in Wuhan. On the EcoHealth side, the report slammed the NGO for failing to guarantee that recipients of federal grants met federal requirements. One such grant recipient, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So this stinks to high heaven. As Republican Senator Rand Paul pointed out, the very agency in charge of making sure that research on viral pathogens in foreign countries is done safely was asleep at the wheel, failing to conduct, quote, adequate oversight. Recall that in his seven-hour deposition in November, Anthony Fauci said that he couldn't remember whether during the period of the federal ban on gain-of-function research, he had ever signed off on waiver requests to allow the experimentation to take place anyway. Now, to be clear, he said that he thinks such waivers were, in fact, granted, but he doesn't know whether he personally approved them. At the end of the day, we might never know COVID's origins for certain, but it's impossible to shake that nagging feeling that something went wrong Maybe it was inside a lab that wasn't following proper safety protocols, that wasn't subjected to rigorous scrutiny, the scrutiny required by law, despite receiving funding from U.S. taxpayers, overseen by an out-of-touch agency and a scientific establishment that was not nearly deferential enough to the real possibility of creating something monstrous. Hmm. Yeah, I think it seems pretty clear that even though it is as yet unproved, as to whether or not the origin of COVID was from a lab leak. The fact that it is possible that such a thing could come from a lab leak makes it extremely concerning that the protocols in effect to guard against that possibility, that outcome, aren't in effect and haven't been in effect. And apparently, they're still struggling to put them into effect even after we're living three years into a pandemic. It's, it's, it's deeply disturbing, and I'm not surprised that five, I mean, that this is a story that you're, you're reading in, in the, the mainstream New York Times context. Yeah, and I, I emphasize the mainstream context because this isn't, you know, some COVID contrarian saying, oh, it was a mess in Wuhan and, and you know, they're not there. This is this is the mainstream. This is a report by the Department of Health and Human Services looking at the National Institute of Health, the organization headed by Dr. Fauci, and looking at their review of grants to EcoHealth Alliance, which was given all this money, taxpayer money, to do research on bat coronaviruses in Wuhan. And we know uh, from ProPublica and other reporting that there was alarming 
lack of, of, of standards in place at Wuhan, uh, and by, I'm, by standards I mean cleanliness, how the animals were being handled. Uh, there was communications with the Chinese government where, the, where there was warning signs, like something had gone really wrong, um, that, that the facility itself was built in a substandard way. All of those concerns. Now, EcoHealth doing, and, and we've, we've seen you know, um, uh, a, a study, reports that they had commissioned talking about, their scientists talking about the kind of research they're doing, which is exactly the kind of frightening research, the, the kind of research that runs the risk of creating something like exactly what happened. And now we're finding out that th there were, so according to the report, there was supposed to be an additional review team mm -hmm. for high risk uh, research being done. And they just didn't subject it to yeah, that. That's what's so disturbing. Like the, the, there were the policies and protocols in place, and they weren't followed, which gives one pause. Because I mean, what do you do at that point? Put more p protocols and policies in place mm -hmm. for people to ignore? Is there going to be any accountability? That's something that I see missing from this article. You know, what are the consequences for the people who did not? man their posts, who did not mm -hmm. provide the oversight that the rules said that they were supposed to have provided. And is ultimately, this is a question that you've been asking for a while now, Anthony Fauci responsible and to what extent now that he's kind of off in re retirement land, um, is there going to be any uh, avenue for accountability for him? Especially when it's a, when the wrongdoing is a sort of just rubber stamping and, and letting it go, like papers, that's what he said in his deposition. Well, papers cross my desk all the time. I don't remember exactly everything I signed off on. And I'm like, okay, but this was very dangerous research. The National Institute of Health knows it was very dangerous research because they had protocols in place right. to subject it to additional review that did not happen. Right. Look, and I'm not trying to be overly carceral here. This is not what I'm arguing. But it does strike me as interesting that if, you know, one of these scientists were to have stolen a phone, <laughs> they'd be held accountable. If they fail to provide you know, the oversight conditions that they're supposed to be providing as part of their job in a way that potentially led to a pandemic that killed millions of people across the globe, shut down global economies, cost untold mm -hmm. billions and trillions of dollars, eh, there's just, there's just no accountability mechanism whatsoever, even outside of a yeah. kind of a criminal justice context. And, and frankly, honestly, I, I've said this before, the fact of the consequences, the economic consequences, the liabilities of COVID being so high, I think ma makes it, makes me very skeptical that even if it were a lab leak, even if this was kind of a human error issue, that we'll ever get to the bottom of it because whoever's responsible would be destroyed. Whatever institutions, whatever people, it would be the end of them. And so the incentive to protect whatever the origin story is, assuming it's not natural, is just enormous. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost to that, this is a quote from what, it's a quote from Stalin, right? One death is a tragedy, one million a statistic. Mm. It's so, the harm of this is so difficult to grapple with because it's so vast. Like, like if, if one person died in a lab accident because of substandard safety protocols that the NIH didn't, that you would expect someone would be held accountable because the, the, the harm is almost more obvious if it's just contained to one person. This is, this is the entire planet, millions and millions of people. They're, it's they're judgment it's, proof, yeah. It's, 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 it's hard to even reckon with it. But, but I, I think we are obligated to try. I think we are obligated to try to get to the bottom of this. This, this is you know, one of the most consequential, horrible things that has happened in our lifetime. Yes. And there is a very real chance it had to do with policy choices. And I mean, it, honestly, it had to do with policy choices either way, because if this is about, 
uh, animals being kept in in unsafe conditions sure. and being sold. I mean, fine. Then that is uh, that is something that should be discussed through the lens of corrective policy as well. Uh, so honestly, yes. there is a that that's a very interesting <laughs> point, Rob, because there's this interesting tension between the libs are coming for your hamburger and yeah. the mass animal farming practices that exist all over the place are hotbeds for viral growth and bacterial spread and transferring, you know, the kind of um, uh, evolution of these of these bacteria and viruses that allow for jumps to human species. Yeah. And, and at some point, I mean, there are environmental consequences to these things. There are public health consequences to these things. There are ethical consequences to these mass farming events, obviously, um, capo farms and the, and the like. And we're going to have to reckon with them one way or the other. And it's going to clash against certain kind of ideologies that right now are very strongly held by conservatives. Yeah, that that might be f fair enough. Uh, I, I think it, there is a, a legitimate. Uh, I, I'm pretty libertarian, as you know. I, I think there's a legitimate interest in the government preventing the creation of super viruses that mm -hmm. could kill us all. I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, but I'm especially insistent that the government not go out of its way to to incidentally create the, vi the super viruses itself, which might be what happened here. We would like to learn more. A hundred percent. Although I will say the government also does subsidize big ag and there are... You, well, you, I, don't want, can, I don't want to subsidize You can make the argument yeah, that, yeah, the government those. is paying for a lot and of all things those. that ultimately are causing these And all those harms. subsidies, <laughs> I would do it. We'll do it. We can go line by line. We'll all right, okay. With a list. We can just end them all. I, I, love, I love when occasionally your libertarianism mm. and my wanting to sanction uh, big corporations align in these beautiful ways, Rob. Love shutting down a good sub subsidy. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a fun time for all. We'll have more rising right after this. President Biden said the United States will not provide F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine when asked yesterday. Let's watch. Will the United States provide F-16s to Ukraine? No. This comes despite other European allies' eagerness to provide such jets, with Macron telling reporters in The Hague on Monday that, by definition, nothing is excluded when it comes to military assistance. Just a week ago, the United States and Germany announced plans to also provide Ukraine with heavy tanks. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said on Sunday that the situation in the country is, quote, very tough. There are constant Russian attacks. There are constant attempts to break through our defenses. We have to speed up events, speed up supplies, and open up new weapons options for Ukraine, end quote. So, you know, people have been pointing out that there's an escalation and it's not clear when it's going to stop. If you understand the context of this engagement being that Russia is infinitely militarily more capable and superior to Ukraine, despite Ukraine being able to hold off Russia, them existing in a stalemate for much of the winter. The final outcome of this, no one really contemplates as Ukraine defeating Russia. So the question is, are the provisions that are being given to Ukraine by these Western countries, by NATO, by the United States, actually bring it closer to ending this conflict or extending the conflict? In front of the show, Glenn Greenwald has pointed out that, you know, first they asked for, uh, we said we would never send Patriot defense missiles, and then we sent them. Um, that we never sent, as we were said, we were never going to send these Abram tanks, and then we're sending tanks. Um, and now Biden has said we're not sending these airplanes, but 
Zelensky has gone and asked other members of the European Union, and it seems like it's an open question as to whether or not he's going to be able to get them from France or Germany. And is that escalation going to end up getting us to a place where there is a direct conflict between a NATO country, NATO weapons, and Russia that basically takes us from a proxy war into full-blown war between nuclear powers? Yeah, and that's the grave concern that has always been present here. You know, at, at what point does Russia say, you have declared war on me? You're arming the country I'm trying to invade, wrongly invade, again, Russia the aggressor here, but uh, it, it brings us closer to peril. It really does. And, and we don't know how all these weapons are going to be used. We don't know who our, who our friends and allies who end up with a lot of this equipment will be years from now. That's the situation we found ourselves in in the Middle East when we were, I mean, we were arming people who later <laughs> became al-Qaeda, who were, were al-Qaeda, who were fighting us eventually. Um, our, our allies have changed hands several times. We killed some of our allies and wanted different ones and then <laughs> got fighting with them. So we, we don't know. And it, it just, it, it seems to me, and, and again, it is one thing to supply weaponry and, and also push for diplomatic and say, this is it. You know, we don't want your country to get overrun right now. The Ukrainians are, again, defending their homeland from military aggression. But like you said, no one expects this to end with the fall of the Russian government, with Ukrainian troops, you know, marching into, into Russia, conquering the capital and deposing Vladimir Putin and installing a different government. I mean, that's, that's very unlikely to happen. So how do we bring this to an end where, where both sides can withdraw where, where there is maybe an agreement, where maybe Russia is satisfied that those, uh, those easternmost portions of, of Ukraine are, are independent or are, or are, are doing self-governance, uh, that have the kind of government that the inhabitants of those regions actually want to have. And then the rest of Ukraine is still Ukraine and is still under Zelensky's control or whatever government ends up being chosen by the people and in the future has the support of NATO countries, if not being part of NATO, that it doesn't get invaded. Let's work out something like that. But is that what's happening? Yeah, this is why I think the mainstream account of what precipitated this crisis, this is, this is, this is why it matters that it's basically very much representing what, mis what precipitated the crisis, because, I mean, part of what the problem is, is, you know, you mentioned Ukraine can be under whatever democratic control. There is a question of whether or not the West has been overly involved in the project of picking who is, uh, uh, who is in control in Ukraine, who is leading Ukraine. And the over-involvement, the made on coup, the Victoria Newland leaked tape where she's talking about picking Ukraine's next leader, all of those kinds of things are in the mix when you're trying to understand the mental state, not the whether or not what, he, what Putin said is right or wrong, but the mental state that has led to this kind of a conflict. And when you raise the questions like you just raised, like the good question of what is what does self-determination look like for Eastern Ukraine, you know, that's a very difficult question. And the difficulties resolving that question are in part why we ended up in this quagmire to begin with. Because from Russia's perspective, and I'm not crediting this, but this is, you have to understand the game, like, the perceptions that are driving behavior. From Russia's perspective, there was a basically bidding war between the uh, over, over Ukraine and whether or not they were going to move to the left and take on kind of the IMF austerity that is required to be a part of the West, which comes at the expense of the people of Ukraine and the austerity measures that we always and the West always uh, um, imposes on these kinds of governments when we bring them into our fold, um, lowering minimum wages, um, 
austerity, broadly speaking, and the the more uh, a choice to align more strongly with Russia. And that tug of war and Ukraine's ultimate choice to lean toward Russia pre, like, uh, was the preempting cause for the 2014 coup and the stream of events that has led to today. So, you know, I wish we were hearing more news reports about what negotiations look like, what the consensus is that's starting to come out of eastern Ukraine. I know feelings have changed as the war has gone on for understandable reasons. Um, but that seems to me to be the fo what should be the focus of this conversation instead of these endless reports of weapons provisions that aren't connected to any conversation of how this conflict actually resolves. Mm. Trump said recently that, you know, if he was president, this never would have happened if he had been reelected. Um, if he was president, he would end this immediately. Um, Obviously, Trump is a boastful person, uh, has been accused of being, of being too close to Vladimir Putin. The mainstream media hated the relationship Trump had with Vladimir Putin, acted as if uh, uh, Trump was a stooge, actually, for Putin, that Putin was able to affect U.S. policy through his puppet-like maneuverings of Donald Trump. Uh, I think it's an open question. What do you think might be different if Trump was president instead of Joe Biden? I mean, it's not just Trump, right? It's also Barack Obama who made the choice not to get military involved when Russia annexed Crimea. I mean, these are decisions that have been made not to engage with Russia as a nuclear power by basically everybody except for Joe Biden. Um, so I think it's a, it's a good question. It's not clear to me that we would be, the United States would be involved in this situation in the same way if Trump were president, although, of course, a lot of people think that's a bad thing. They think that that would be evidence of Trump's close relationship with, collusion with Russia, fidelity to Russia in a kind of um, traitorous way, uh, which, you know, is their right. But I think that everyone, even if you very much support giving military aid to Ukraine, has to ask the question of how you prevent this from becoming the next Afghanistan. No matter how righteous the you believe the intervention to be, which is what the Hillary Clinton type people want it to be, they want it to become the next Afghanistan because it bleeds Russia. Yes, it bleeds Russia. It feeds our Clinton, national security the, you know, the, state. Uh, the, our 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 weapons the manufacturing. The neoconservative interventionist type people. A absolutely, absolutely. Which is a you know the blob is bipartisan. The blob, un unfortunately. So I like again, I people have to start answering that question, and it's not enough to say. They, they need us, the Ukrainians need us. Well, like, the world is big and terrible, and there are a lot of people who I think would benefit from a lot of different types of aid, military and humanitarian and otherwise. And yet we're involved in this conflict because through statements we've heard from the State Department and elsewhere, we want to weaken Russia. The goal is to weaken Russia. The goal is to weaken Putin. And I'm not sure that given, especially given the crisis that exists domestically, where people are paying a king's ransom for a dozen eggs, that that's exactly what the American taxpayer wants people to be doing, the government that it, doing. Because if that is the goal, we could be at it forever. Correct. Just, just as there were people who wanted us in Iraq and Afghanistan forever. It's like, well, how, when can we get troops out? When, when, when is enough? And, and when caught in a moment of honesty, they would say, well, yeah, so what if we're here in the next 100 years? Yeah. We're, it's, it's in service of a noble goal. We, we will fight the terrorists here instead of at home, or what, you know, whatever justification they were giving for it. But in their moments of honesty, they would say, no, we will have a presence here forever. Eight, $8 trillion estimated cost for the 20-year war in Afghanistan. $8 trillion. What could you do with $8 trillion, Robbie? I would, I would just start writing checks, giving, giving tax money back to the people, <laughs> the people who paid it. I mean, look. Yes. We could fund some of your social programs, I okay. guess. A little, a little health care, please? <laughs> just a okay, bit? All right. If you all right. Diana.
More rising right after this. The View's Whoopi Goldberg commented on police reform yesterday, a few days after the footage from the horrific beating of Tyree Nichols was released. Let's watch. When will the brutality finally lead to some police reform from the ground up? Because clearly, it doesn't matter if it's a white policeman or a black policeman, it is a problem in the police, in the policing yes. itself, you know. Seems things don't seem to make sense to people unless it's somebody they can feel or they can recognize. Mm -hmm. But how many times do we have to, do we need to see white people also get beaten before anybody will do anything? I'm not suggesting that. So don't write us and tell me what a, you know, what a racist I am. Yeah, I, I don't think she was suggesting that, but she should be a little careful there because white people are brutalized by the, and Asian people and everyone. They're, in fact, in, in raw numbers, more more white people. The right. issue is that there's a disproportionate relative to their overall representation in the population. Black people are a minority in the, it's like, how, how many is it? We're about 10%. Oh, it's lower now, it's like 11, 12, I think. Right, something like that. So 11% of the population is black. So if it was if it was totally equitable, right. eleven percent of police brutality would be black people. Way more than that. But still, in absolute yeah. terms, there are a lot of white white people being the vast majority of people in the country brutalized by the police. So it's not. It, it's, this is don't pretend that this is just an issue that affects. Yeah, this black has been people. such an interesting moment because the five main officers. Now there were six officers. It's worth noting, and the sixth white officer has been gone from the discourse. People. Were, became aware of the, that officer's existence in part because one of the body cam footage, footage mm -hmm. you can see their arm tasering, and people started to raise questions. And now this guy, um, you know, is now been identified and taken off, but not fired in the same way that the black officers have been fired. So that's a whole other issue. But the fact that five black officers were involved principally in this case has led some people, I've seen some conservative commentators who say this isn't about race at all. You have Whoopi Goldberg kind of also doing kind of a liberal version of that argument. And the conservatives are framing this as a kind of an own. Like, you guys have been saying this is a racial issue. It's not actually a racial issue. From my perspective, I, it, it of course matters that black people are disproportionately policed. Mm -hmm. Of course that matters. It is also true, and I've been arguing this for a long time, that everyone should care about it because the police are out here beating up and attacking everyone. We've talked about the horrific case of uh, Daniel Shaver, is his right. name, who was one of the most gr gruesome incidents of police violence that was I've the ever seen. He was in the hotel. He was killed. We, we talked about that on the show. It's real bad. And, and just like Tyree Nichols, he was given Unwanted. a million contradictory yes. directions. He was not a threat. Tyree Nichols, we still don't know why he, they, he was pulled over. He did not have a criminal record. He was a, 145 pounds despite being rather tall because he had Crohn's disease, seemingly like not, not someone who was threatening at all and who had committed zero crimes. But the police are saying, stand up, sit down, put your hands yeah. here, put your hands there. At the same time, they're beating him up and flinging him around like a rag doll. I mean, so this is a, a, an issue of authoritarian overreach that everyone, regardless of your politics and regardless of your race, should be very concerned about. And to the extent that this is a, an episode that, because the cops are white, help people to understand that this is about police overreach and the devaluing of 
the lives of the people that the police come in contact with, more so when they're black, to be honest, because there is a disproportionate impact there. But this should be a wake-up call for everyone to care more about police violence, not to try to minimize what happened here. Uh, but I, I would say that, and, and this is a point I've made before, that I, I think the explicit racial framing of police violence that was, I think you have to admit, was a, a, ta a deliberate tactic by activists on police issues, you know, even more so in recent years with the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, I don't know that that has been the most helpful framing for this because it has allowed it to become really politicized. Maybe it would have been politicized anyway, but you know, this is an, I always try to talk about it, especially if I'm talking about it with people, with Republicans or people who might, you know, not be, uh, not be down with the Black Lives Matter framing, I would say, like, this is an issue of, of, of government accountability to citizens. The police are, are employees of the citizens. They're paid by the citizens to keep us safe, not to, not to brutalize citizens or to violate their rights or to hassle them or harass them. Um, in, in the same way, I were outraged by, you know, the TSA doing it, and obviously in a less yeah. lethal way than this, or yeah. any other, or, or, your, or the DMV person or the, the IRS agent or whatever, you know, yeah. the, could service want to defund that because it's annoying and, uh, and, and more than annoying. It's, it's really, it can be really, uh, really wreck your day or your life yeah, to interact yeah. with agents of the state yeah. this way. And here we, we yeah. see interactions with agents of the state having the most dire consequence of all, death yes. or, or, or being beaten up. And let's be angry about that and, and talking about it that way I think maybe maybe makes yeah, it less political. I, I, I wrote an article. I'm sorry, I've, I've been preaching this for a long time. I wrote an article in New York Magazine back in 2017 called Racism Might Have Gotten Into This Mess, But Identity Politics Won't Get Us Out, in which I confront Ta-Nehisi Coates' argument that he was making at the time that, you know, America is fundamentally racist. I mean, I don't, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that mm -hmm. basically he both wanted to hold—, hold uh, this idea that America is fundamentally racist, but also we have to specifically frame all of these policies in racial terms in order to get due justice for the people who are disproportionately affected. And to me, that always seemed to be very counterintuitive. If your argument is that America's, Americans like policies less if they understand them to racially to benefit one racial group disproportionately, if, if you understand that mm -hmm. conservatives have historically attacked things like welfare programs by saying, oh, well, these, these undeserving poor black, brown people are getting it, even though more white people are on welfare than any other group for the same mm -hmm. demographic uh, reasons that you explained before, then why would you intentionally frame all of these policies that are, in fact, neutral, even if they disproportionately affect black people because they disproportionately affect poor people, why would you intentionally frame them all as racial policies? You know that there, if there's racism in America and people are going to reject a policy out of hand because they see it as racially benefiting black people, why are you self-sabotaging by framing these policies in that way? And it's, it's more a little more nuanced than that. And I know that, again, I don't want to diminish what it means as a society for there to be these disproportionate impacts on black people, specifically when it comes to policing. At the same yeah. time, though, I do think that there are more people who would be invested in it and care more about it if it wasn't framed as so exclusively a black issue. Well, and then when you have an incident like this, where it's actually, it is predominantly at least black cops involved beating uh, to death a black man, and then, you know, some people trying to defend the racial f uh, framing will still say, well, this is still evidence of white supremacy because the system, and then they start going down that it takes almost like a galaxy brain take to kind of explain that. And I think you just get really lost in the weeds then. Or some people will tune Look. it out because it takes so much additional explanation to say, to, to explain why saying that isn't totally ridiculous to yes. most people. So I think most people making that argument are doing it poorly. I will say that yeah. it's not, it is completely consistent with people who 
people who know what they're talking about know what they're talking about. Unfortunately, all of this academic race stuff has just taken to Twitter and a bunch of people who shouldn't right. be talking are talking. But for example, I often cite a statistic about how you're four times more likely to get the death penalty if you kill a white person versus a black person. And again, just like this cop situation, it's about the victim, not the perp. Mm -hmm. So what that says is that there is more, there is a bigger penalty for ending a white life than a black life, regardless of who does it. And so I think that a lot of this, you know, the idea that black people also internalize that bias against black people, it's like a no-known. James Baldwin, people have been circulating this, this quote a lot, James Baldwin, a century, half a century ago, wrote, black policemen, or another matter, we used to say, if you just must call a policeman, for we hardly ever did, for God's sake, try to make sure it's a white one. A black policeman could completely de uh, demolish you. He knew far more about you than a white policeman could, and you were without defenses before this black brother in uniform, mm. whose entire reason for breathing seemed to be his hope to offer proof that though he was black, he was not black like you. So black people aren't just coming up with this stuff last minute, oh, it's okay that they're black policemen, it's not about race. It can still be about race, but regardless, it's also about something bigger than that, this authoritarian issue. Mm. And you wanted to react, I think, to a clip from Tucker Carlson talking about uh, the, uh, the police beating incident. Let's watch that. So the race riots of 2020, of course, were never about George Floyd, obviously. That's why there are no statues of him in American cities. They were about changing the country forever. And the first step, of course, was defunding police departments across the country and forcing them to lower their standards to attract unqualified applicants, hiring officers based on skin color rather than integrity or skill or self-control, all in the name of equity. Now, does that result in better policing? Well, what happened in Memphis a few weeks ago is one indicator. So people have pointed out that these people were hired before 2020, the idea that this is some kind of post-George Floyd affirmative action that caused these black officers to be hired just isn't um, rooted in reality. But if we're talking about how some people, some liberals are weirdly skewing a racial narrative to make it make sense, this seems to me to be a kind of a crazy overreach as well. Uh, well, it might not be applicable in this specific case. Uh, I mean, it is true, though, that police services and firefighter services and other had practiced for some period of time affirmative action to racially balance the, com uh, the, the composition of the workforce with no benefit right to the actual. Wait a minute. Are you confusing the term affirmative action for diversity, wanting diversity on the force? Because affirmative action, there's some implication that these that the people hired were not qualified for the jobs. These black officers acting just like how so many other white officers did doesn't seem to me that they're underqualified as compared to the rest of the force. It seems like they're acting exactly like the rest of the white officers on the force. And that's the problem, that they're acting like well, police officers, not that they are somehow underqualified okay, police not, officers. Well, not every police officer engages in police brutality, right? There are better police officers and we're, we want more good police officers because we're not going to get rid of policing services. Sure, but how many white services. officers have you been talking about over the course of the last almost 10 years since we've been, the Black Lives Matter movement has been afoot. I would, I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I know there have been the, some instances mm -hmm. of non-white officers, um, but just 
numbers wise, I would but what I'm be saying, very we, confident we, saying that they're overwhelmingly right white officers a, a involved in the situation. Be, well, I, I don't know if that's. I don't know if that's the well. Again, they should be overwhelmingly white because yeah. white people are seventy percent of the population. So were those people affirmative action hires who white. shouldn't have been hired? Is that somehow like they they got a leg up because their dad was a cop or something like that, and I'm we should be interrogating we their merit as well? People to be police who are who show restraint and who are empathetic, regardless of race, rather than say, if we hire a bunch more black police officers, then we'll solve our disproportionate racism So I, I, I agree problem. with the idea that representation in the force is going to solve this problem. Obviously, it's not. You mean you not. agree that, okay, right. So, you agree right. that it's not going to solve the problem. It's obviously not going to solve the problem. That's, yeah. That was always a ridiculous argument, and only foolish people were making that argument. Mm -hmm. However, that's a different thing than that saying- That argument was these, made, though. Yeah. And it was foolish. Yeah. This, this, this argument, though, that these people were underqualified because they're black, that's that's absurd. That's saying. They're affirmative action hires. If they were, if they had hired qualified white officers, this wouldn't have happened. I think we've, he was just saying if they'd seen, hired qualified officers. And why would you presume that? Apart from the fact that they're obviously didn't they're not qualified because they just beat someone. Well, I know, but <laughs> this argument is not being raised when we're talking about the hundreds, the, the plurality of officers that are, are are breaking the law, being incarcerated because they have abused or killed civilians in the line of duty. This this is it's a ridiculous shoehorning in to try to pretend that this is about. You know, black people did this to themselves because they wanted representation on the police yeah. force. Well, I, I don't that's think an that, absurd I don't argument. know that that's what he was saying. I think that that's what he was saying. You don't have to agree with that, but I think that that is that is what he was saying, and that's the kind of thing that you would say if I, if you weren't making a kind of sincere argument about the fact that this is something that could happen to anyone, mm. and if you care about it happening to you and your brethren as it very much could, regardless of your race, you should care about police reform. It's worth noting that in Memphis, the police budget has only increased. Um, since uh, 2017 by 11.2% uh, um, in that the police budget is now 40% of the entire city's budget. It is something that could happen to anyone, and that bears emphasis. They, they could have the wrong address, bang down your front door in the middle of the night, Brad and Taylor. shoot you when you confusingly, that's happened to, it's happened to white people too, it's happened yes. to Asian people, it's happened to old people, it's happened to conservative people. Yes. It can happen. We don't want to, so we have to fix the policies and the, and the actual kinds of police officers who are engaged in this work. Some of this work doesn't need to be done at all. A hundred percent. We'll have more rising right after this. We are doing the work that is about collaborating around the small businesses that will need to do the work that will be the result of all the trillions of dollars we're putting into the infrastructure of our country, including the tr almost trillion dollars that we're going to be putting into a whole new economy that is called a clean energy economy, right? As President Biden passes the halfway mark of his first term, many can't help but wonder if he'll run again. If not, is Vice President Kamala Harris up to the task to fill his shoes? Her lackluster performance as VP, including communication missteps and lack of visibility, have left several Democrats concerned about the Harris political about uh, Harris's political future, according to the Washington Post. A running 538 poll of Harris's performance shows that while 38% of Americans approve of the job she's doing, a whopping 51% they disapprove. According to the Washington Post report, some in the party worry the broader public may shy away from voting for a woman of color, plus her lack of political prowess at times may ding her political aspirations. And everyone can stop worrying about 2024 because Joe Biden will run for re-election. I'm going to say that again for the thousandth time. Everybody loves to speculate that he won't, but he will. So we can just put that, put that away. 
But Kamala Harris will be anointed as his most plausible successor for 2028. And uh, there is where I think Democrats are right to worry because she's just not popular and she's not gaining popularity. You know what? I don't actually know that I agree that she's going to be anointed for 2028, just because there's already been so much pushback. In the Washington Post op-ed, they include a clip of Elizabeth Warren being asked about the possibility, not about 2028, but if, if Biden is not up to the challenge because of his age and health. That's the context of this, right? Biden's going to be, what, 86? You know, the questions are, what if he can't make it? Or what if, God not. forbid, something happens to him while he's in office? Is Kamala up to the challenge? And when asked that particular question, Elizabeth Warren uh, would not say gung-ho uh, Kamala. She kind of demurred. She said, uh, yes, he should run again when asked uh, about that, but then said, I really want to defer to what makes Biden comfortable on his team, if asked if Harris should be his running mate if he runs again. Well, of course, she wants it to be her. <laughs> she still wants it. I mean, maybe maybe that's what's going on. Or maybe per this Washington Post article, they interviewed a dozen Democratic people in leadership across the country uh, about Kamala Harris. And they were able to get a lot of people off the record, but a lot of people who are willing to say that they had these concerns about Kamala Harris's long-term um, political prospects. But it's going to be very, um, it's going to be bad when she is not anointed. Uh, I, you're right that there's going to be a lot of resistance to her because there are, she's not more popular than anybody else. There are going to be people like Mayor Pete, maybe some actual progressive, maybe Elizabeth Warren, maybe Amy Klobuchar, some of the people that were in the mix last time are going to say, hey, she got picked for this and she didn't do a good job of it. She has no natural constituency. I might as well make a go of it. The issue will be that uh, the headache is going to be that the mainstream media, the progress, some progressive media, a lot of people on MSNBC, Joy Reid, are going to be furious, furious that the, that the Democratic Party is not just giving this to the woman of color who is the most on paper, plausible successor to Biden because she was the vice president. I, I think that you're right that Joy Reid will be upset about it, and she's about the only one. Yeah. Tiffany Cross is no longer on cable. Maybe Simone Zanders will be upset about it. No one else will care. I Maybe none of the people will care. There will be, but there will be headlines that frustrate the DNC that they're having to deal with this, that they're having to fight down like accusations of racism. But conservatives will play into it. They'll say, "Oh, look at look at the Democrats are passing on a woman of color because they don't actually care about non-racism." And I think this I'm going to say it's just going to be entertaining. Well, remember this? Uh, was it last week or the week before? We talked about Stacey Abrams saying that she wasn't out of the political game. And the savvy thing to do when you're in one of these situations where you've made yourself vulnerable to bad faith attacks of racism is to simply replace the person with another black person. And so I can I could also see a world in which Stacey Abrams or some other person of color at the very least is kind of shoehorned in this position to insulate the administration against those kinds of criticisms. Mm. And and to by the way, the quote that we read earlier uh, from the Washington Post about concerns that uh, Kamala's lack of popularity or the criticisms that she's gotten is because she's a black woman, at a certain point, that becomes, I think, really insulting to black women, because fundamentally, the, com the, the conversation has been very substantive about Kamala Harris. We live in a world where Barack Obama remains one of the most popular pre you know, living presidents and not the most popular living president. Michelle Obama Michelle is Michelle Obama popular. is enormously popular. I mean, like... 
you can't keep using that yeah. excuse. It's not that there aren't some, there, I can't go on the internet and find some racist statement somebody's made about Kamala Harris, but also so many of her critics, including in her home state, that focused in on criticizing her because of her oppressive criminal justice background were in fact black and they didn't like her because of the way she treated black people in her own state. And so it becomes really craven, insulting, degrading, and frankly racist in and of itself for her not to take accountability or for the people who are representing her not to take accountability for her own actions and to somehow blame that on black people. She strikes a lot of people as inauthentic. We don't know what she actually stands for, what her ideology is, if she even has one. As you said, she's changed from a, she, she was a prosecutor. She was a, she was a true not a progressive cop. one. Not a progressive one. And then the moment became about progressive prosecution. And she rebranded. Stuff. She rebranded. But I know what she really stands for. Um, she was not, she wasn't gonna, she was, she was not doing well in her own, she wasn't gonna win her own, the primary in her own state. Andrew Yang was going to beat her in her yeah. own state. Unknown Andrew Yang. And look, Lee Fong did this great reporting back at The Intercept uh, during the campaign season where he went through her history and talked about how she beat a legitimately progressive prosecutor, Tom Hanneland, who in the, was in an era where there was no such thing as a progressive prosecutor. And she won, he, he went to the, like, found these primary archives in the San Francisco library, I believe, of her old campaign flyers from the 90s. And they are the kind of thing that you would expect from the most kind of like tough on crime, right wing conservative, uh, you know, uh, close ups of like a bare chested man with gang signs across his 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 chest and guns and throwing up gang signs, talking about enough is enough, bragging about her, uh, uh, how many people that she put in jail, flyers with a chalk outline drawn on the sidewalk, fear-mongering, like truly mm -hmm. out of a kind of a Willie Horton-esque playbook. This is the woman that people are- And, and to be clear, leaving into that now like. might have been politically pragmatic thing to do, but it, why, I say she's insincere, inauthentic, because she, she has kind of renounced, she hasn't even renounced that. She's just pretended she never did that. Also, she's she just pretended that wasn't her. She doesn't talk about this. Like we're in the moment where the entire country is talking about Tyree Nichols' murder. Mm -hmm. The vice president of the United States is a black woman and former prosecutor, and should she be playing some role? I mean, it would seem natural in a certain context for her to be the one kind of leading the conversation about police reform, what are we going to do? But she's not, and she can't, and you know why? It's because Joe Biden ran on funding the cops more. He's a tough-on-crime guy. He always has been. He was the author of the crime bill. No matter what Republicans want to say about him— He's not, he's not this light on crime guy that they want to paint him as. I wish he were, to be clear, but he's not. And so there is an, there's this tension that exists between who Kamala Harris is pretending to be to get political agency and the, the wagon she's hitched herself to in Joe Biden. And that's part of, I mean, I do have some empathy for her for that. Like she, to the extent that she has something to say, has something to offer in this moment, that the thing that she at least pretended to like some good progressive things during the 2019-2020 campaign, she's completely neutered from being anything uh, other than a sidekick because those policies are so antithetical to what Joe Biden had decided to run and win on. Yeah, she's going to face competition for the throne when it is time.
for Biden to have an actual successor. I don't think that's going to be in 2024, but in 2028. You think he's not going to ditch her for Stacey Abrams? <laughs> there's no way he can do that. It, it will just create too much of a headache. If he could magically replace her with someone else, I think it would be in his political best interest to do that. If she just decided she's done that's with politics and bowed out, because if she is upset about it, then it's going to be a thing. Then it's going to be something you talk there, about. There has it's going to be stupid, be... but it's going to be in the news cycle for forever about how he snubbed her. It has to be the perception that she asked for it. So she has to say, uh, my stepdaughter is pregnant. I want to spend time raising my grandchildren. That or or, or having a health issue. Or he has to put her on a court or something. Sure. Some other oh. thing. Oh, God. <laughs> not Justice Harris for the rest of all time. Yeah. That, was the, that was the shot. Well, there's not going to be another chance at that, probably. But if you really, if you really want to get rid of her, that was the way to do it. Mm. Yeah, well, it's an interesting story to watch. Before we go, I do want to add Senator Warren has walked back her refusal to back President, uh, Vice President Harris, telling GBH News yesterday, I fully support the president's and vice president's re-election together and never intended to imply otherwise. They're a terrific team with a strong record of delivering for working families. All right, we'll have more rising for you after this. The issue is not whether Joe Biden, what Joe Biden did. Uh, no, the is issue, is, the the issue is equal why treatment is it, under the law. That's the issue. No, the equal issue is treatment under the law. You do not seem to ever see the same conspiratorial problems when it's a Republican. Those were all investigated for four years and they continue By the way, to do it. Their Durham investigation investigated <laughs> everything you're trying to investigate and came up with nothing. Do you not trust Bill Barr and, and Mr. Durham? The Mueller investigation, we had two and a half years of this, and they were going to find Russian collusion. And guess what? They can't. Even though Adam Schiff told but, us, Adam Schiff told the, us that the Durham more investigation than did not come up with any. They investigated all this, all these concerns that you had about the FBI, about made-up snitches, all these things. They didn't find anything. Why is it that you want to reinvestigate it? They found that Kevin Kleinsmith altered documents and he pled guilty to it. That's fine. And so, when you got someone with the FBI altering documents in front of the FISA court, that's not finding anything. <laughs> that's pretty that important, Chuck. That's a, they, and that's they what did we're not find what you are claiming that is out there. Well, Why the, couldn't Durham the, find it? The, the Durham investigation is not done. The Mueller investigation is done. And what did he conclude? No collusion, no conspiracy, no coordination. That was Ohio Republican Jim Jordan sparring with NBC News' Meet the Press, uh, Chuck Todd, host of that show. Uh, so I thought that was a very interesting exchange. Um, I also read a great piece in the Columbia Journalism Review yesterday about Russiagate and how it was covered um, in the press. I, I actually did my radar yesterday, I believe. It's crazy how all the days run together. <laughs> what day is today? What is Tuesday? Yesterday, I talked with Batya about uh, the, the latest Twitter files drop, which was last week, Matt Taibbi re uh, revealing that this um, infamous list of 600 Russian bot accounts that were having some huge influence on the discourse that was put forth by this alliance securing democracy, um, it, was all, it was fake. These were real people. They were Americans, not bots, participating in political dialogue. And, uh, and, and then the interesting thing there was that Twitter, Yoel Roth found out, he reverse engineered the list because it was a private list, to find out that they were not, that they were authentic accounts. And he wanted to go nuclear, go to war with this group. Mm -hmm. And other people at Twitter talked to him because, because the Russian paranoia in the media was so pervasive, they were like, we can't even, we can't appear to even quarrel with this group. 
Wait, I'm sorry. Nuts. The the Yol, the these were a group of people who were real and not Russian. Yes. Yol Roth wanted to go nuclear against them in what way? No, nuclear against the group that was, was claiming that, that, they claiming were that there are 600 I, I bots on Twitter and that everything that happens, everything anyone says nice about a conservative or Trump is actually a Russian bot. Uh, a beloved story by the media. And uh, Matt right, Taibbi you're, has... You're turning into a, kind of a Yol Roth fanboy over here. I am. <laughs> I, well, he was... He was uh, he, I, my impression has really changed after that initial uh, Twitter files release. Anyway, th so this, these are all vaguely related things about how the Russia collusion narrative crystallized and was just so, was, was pushed by bad faith actors, mm -hmm. pushed by liars, mm -hmm. and swallowed up by the media and embraced by them. So in this chip, a clip with Chuck Todd and Jim Jordan, it, it, it seems to me Chuck Todd is continuing to say that, you know, there's some kind of there there with respect to the various yeah, Russia investigations. But Jim Jordan is also saying, well, I want there to be an investigation that, from my kind of political perspective, mm -hmm. investigation into um, Joe Biden, et cetera, et cetera. And there's like this weird battle of whose FBI's investigations we, sh we should trust, whose should be, you know, mm -hmm. uh, considered to be meritorious, whether or not it's worth doing continued digging. And I wonder what the public reaction is to these kind of dueling investigations. How much of this is going, not going over the, the, the heads of the American people, but it's just not that interesting Well, anymore. but, but is it, one is an investigation, one was an investigation of something that, right, Trump being influenced by Russia that again, turned out to have no there there. The other is an investigation of the investigators and why they did that. I mean, sure. I, I guess my concern is that Chuck Todd responds and says, you seem to have a lack of trust in the integrity of the people that are conducting the investigations, but you are happy to cite that cite those investigations for having cleared Donald Trump's name. Is there a, is there a hypocrisy there? You're, you're, you, do you, do you, mm -hmm. that, I feel like I that's the argument that, that yeah. Chuck Todd is making. Well, I be, because I bet in his heart of hearts he doesn't believe or hasn't admitted that there was no basis to the whole to the whole Russia influence thing, or that it was maybe there was kernels of truth to it, but the it was so it was exaggerated beyond any recognition of, of resembling an actual fact pattern. They they and other outlets cited this this group over and over again that that again had a made up list of of accounts that were not Russian and were not bots. And and brought that up every time something happened, some, some political conversation. Look how look how Twitter is polluting the discourse by allowing Russia to have this outsized influence. There just wasn't. There's no basis to it. It's not true. It's not true. Yeah. And there's been and there's been no reckoning, uh, very little reckoning within the media about that. There's been a reckoning outside the media. Conservative media has covered it. Independent people like Matt Taibbi, like us on our show, it, Glenn Greenwald. There's no shortage of people covering it. To be clear. But there's been no reckoning within the media itself, and I, I think they, I think some of them still believe it to be true, or they're just ignoring oh, it. Oh, people absolutely do. Um, I mean, I was I recently did a debate with a prominent Twitch streamer who I had to sidestep his repeated re references to Russiagate um, and, and Trump collusion because it was derailing our it would have derailed our conversation. But m many people continue to hold that is gospel. And it's very much motivating the people's opinions about Ukraine. It's motivating people's opinions about Donald Trump and, and domestic politics. And it's, it's, 
it's frustrating because I do think that there is a way in which it's still relevant, and that's the way it's being kind of digested in the Twitter files. That is to say, there are media empires that can't be trusted. There is collusion between big tech and the government in a way that is very disruptive and anti-democratic. Those are stories that I think there's a lot of public interest in. This back and forth in that Meet the Press exchange, I think, is probably why shows like Meet the Press cable news generally speaking isn't getting the numbers that it used to. Yeah, I, it's it's uh, it is it's remarkable to me that that narrative still endures. They spent that this Russian troll farm spent a very small amount of money on some small level of fake posts and fake accounts that were seen by very few people that were not targeted despite the whole Cambridge Analytica thing that is is just, again, a, a not true story. They were not directly targeted at swing voters or anyone. It, it had no political... There's, there's no way, if you're trying to quantify its effect, you would have to put it next to the gazillion dollars actually spent by the campaigns and, and, and free advocacy done by their surrogates on cable news and in talk radio and in newspapers and say that all of that influence was somehow dwarfed by a tiny, tiny number of accounts and money spent. It's ridiculous. It's transparently ridiculous. And, and the media has not reckoned with that. Yeah, look, I'm still waiting for the investigation into uh, the K-Hive bots, the Brock right. bots. Right. I mean, have they found these alleged Bernie bro bots yet, or are they disappointed to find that those are just real people who believed in something as well? <laughs> <laughs> right, they, and then the narrative was that those were Russians, too. Right. Russia was trying to help Bernie, and it was trying to help Trump. Uh, just not liking Clinton or something, it's not, it's not true. Yeah, we're all, we're all Russian now. I was joking uh, during break that we should get t-shirts made up where everyone just says Russia, Russia, Russia. Russia, Russia. Russia. Jan Brady's Jan face Brady on it. On it. <laughs> right. I'll Love buy me. you one for your birthday, Brianna. Oh, I, I cannot wait. You, yours too, we're just a week apart. <laughs> we'll have matching, we'll match we can it. wear our matching Jan Brady Jan shirts on the show. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, more rising after this. Twitter CEO Elon Musk was in the nation's capital last week. During his tour in D.C., he visited the White House and Capitol Hill. These visits included meetings with several powerful Republicans who are investigating the Biden administration's efforts to influence the major social media platforms as well as big tech's alleged censorship of conservatives. That's according to Politico. Musk met with Speaker Kevin McCarthy, House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan, and House Oversight and Accountability Chair James Comer according to a committee spokesperson. The Twitter CEO also attended meetings with two top White House officials on Friday to discuss the advancement of electric vehicle production. All right, Mr. Musk goes to Washington um, ostensibly to talk about how the platform, his platform can be fair to both parties. Oh, what do you, what do you make of this? That's what he said he wants. He, he wants Twitter to be fair to both parties. I think most people would agree that that's a noble goal, that they would like Twitter to be fair to both parties. It's a place for political dialogue. It's, uh, it, it's it, in fact, if Twitter has a differentiating feature about it among the social media sites, it is one disproportionately where political actors and policy people congregate to discuss things. Uh, I, ideally, it should be fair to both, uh, to both players, to both sides and all sides. So I think it's fine for him to make that clear that that's the goal to, uh, to political people who are involved in the regulation of Twitter. I also see that there was some more recent news that he's interested in adding a payment 
sort of tech, uh, software to Twitter, uh, both to pay to use it to and, and also to facilitate payment transactions. Mm -hmm. um, he's going to need regulatory approval for that. I'm going to guess that that came up at the meeting. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> what can we do to kind of grease the wheels on that process? Uh, obviously, that's kind of how it works. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you this. It, it, there has been, the Twitter files have really focused on the idea that there has been untoward lobbying by the government of these social media platforms to enact a mo content moderation regime that is sympathetic to one political side or another, principally the Democrats. Is the lobbying itself the issue? And if so, is there a difference when it's just out in the open? You know, is it is it right and good for Elon Musk to be talking directly with m members of what, whomever's administration about its internal decision making and how it plans to do content moderation? I think in an ideal world, they wouldn't do any of that because it, it, Congress would have very little sway or power over what's going on on social media, or there would there would be just a, a, a no, there'd be rules and they're enforced equally and they're transparent and obvious and so there's no uh, room for like individual personalities to have different policies toward one or the other. Unfortunately, that's not the world we live in because both Democrats and Republicans cannot help themselves from complaining about social media or complaining about various policies or hauling the people involved in those policies before Congress, commenting on everything going on, saying it should be different. And then even more, much more problematic than that, even though I, I would argue that is problematic itself, much more problematic is that behind the scenes, various federal bureaucracies have seen fit to reach out to Twitter and Facebook and Google and presumably other companies and try to influence what their policies are. Right. So, I mean, do you, is there anything, I'm, I'm just asking, I'm trying to work this through, because on some level it's, it's the way things are, and I'm not trying to be unfairly critical of Elon Musk in this context, but... There does seem to me to be some tension between saying, I don't like the idea that the government is lobbying Twitter, and then making oneself available, taking this big Washington trip to say, pitch me on how basically you think this platform should be, what mm -hmm. could be more equal in your eyes. Like, is this the business of the government at all to weigh in? Do they have good suggestions? Might they have actually good ideas? And if they do, is the implication that all of the lobbying that was happening in the previous Twitter regime was untoward? I, yeah, I think it's okay to point that out, and right, ideally you would have a pretty, again, you'd have a, like an iron mm -hmm. wall of separation here between the government and social media companies, but, I mean, we live in a world where Democratic representatives sent letters to AT&T and Comcast and other people saying, you're, we noticed you're carrying Newsmax. Care to comment? Maybe do something about that? Yeah. Which is just so, to me, beyond the pale. And, and so the response to that is to say, let's formalize the lobbying efforts. I'm just well, trying to understand Let's take a meeting with the... Kevin McCarthy to see what he has to say, is I think not as necessary, not as offensive on its face. Obviously, if Kevin McCarthy is in that meeting saying, so we're going to have antitrust regulation being discussed in this committee, this committee, this committee, unless you do X, Y, and Z, then that's the exact same thing I'm complaining about, and that should not take place. Yeah, I mean, it does, it feels like the complaint is shifting from the idea that lobbying is bad to lobbying by Democrats is bad. Well, both are bad. They're begging for, the companies are begging for mercy, or they should be begging for mercy. They're being, they're being 
pushed and pulled and prodded and by both sides, and they can't make anyone happy because they're being asked to do contradictory things. I mean, that is the fundamental issue. They are being, they are being pushed by Democrats and by, and by federal bureaucracies to restrict much more content, and they're being pushed by Republicans to restrict way less content. And there's, there's, no way, there's just no way to satisfy both those demands. Yeah, well, another reason that people are, I think, somewhat concerned is, as we've discussed uh, at length in this show, there has been some inconsistency um, with which uh, Elon Musk has applied his new uh, content moderation regime. Um, most recently, a few days ago, there was a story here, it was reported by Business Insider, that elite internal message appears to show that Elon Musk specifically ordered a Twitter staff, the Twitter staff to suspend a left-wing, a left-leaning activist account. Anti-fascist activist Chad Loader's Twitter account was suspended in November. An elite internal Twitter message suggests that Elon Musk directly ordered the suspension. Bloomberg reported the internal message as saying, quote, suspension, direct request from Elon Musk. Hmm. So given that, coupled with um, his recent comments about how he prefers the Republican Party and the right, um, it, it leads people to question whether or not this really is about making the platform fair and equal, which I think is a legitimate goal, one that did not exist under the last Twitter regime for sure, or whether this is about simply enacting revenge um, and, and doing so in a way that, frankly, isn't even ideologically consistent with for the, for the right, um, with you know people like Kanye being censured for reasons that don't necessarily follow protocol, et cetera. Well, right. I've never said Elon Musk is beyond criticism. I don't agree with all the decisions he's made. Actually, right now, I'm seeing him getting uh, some pushback from various people, not some on the right, some you wouldn't, they're free speech, maybe free speech left people. I mean, these are all people who are hard to categorize at this point. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a lot of criticism of this Eliza Blue figure. Um, probably I should talk about that in more depth when I myself do more research on it. It's a very fraught subject. But this is someone uh, who portrayed themselves as a survivor of sex trafficking and has been, I think, a very informal advisor to Elon Musk. Or it, it seemed to be one of those people who can get his attention very easily, who can get him to reply to her, talking about the threat of sex trafficking. Um, there has been a lot of questions and then it now looks like she has also allegedly been able to just get critics of her silenced and mm. deep and kicked off the platform. A lot of people, she made a recent appearance on Tim Pool's show. Mm. A lot of people, including people I have a lot of respect for, like um, Katie Herzog, Michael Tracy, others, and then some on the right, are raising questions about her background, which sounds very sketchy, and that I saw has Katie nothing tweeting. actually to do with sex trafficking. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but but she seems to, and I, I'm using cautious language here. I don't want to get in trouble. I haven't done all of the research on this one yet. This is a very rabbit hole kind of subject to get into, but um, it, it seems like she's had Elon Musk's ear and uh, and and. Has used that to silence some dissent, and that's that's, that's, bad. that's been the issue the whole time. Look, if if I were able to dictate Elon Musk banning people, if you were able to dictate Elon Musk banning people, it would still be a bad yeah. thing, even if it's in our own self interest. It because you you cannot you cannot move through the world just hoping that the benevolent dictator is on your side. That is, that is not that is not a strategy with. I strongly to agree it. with that. I, I've been trying to say that to a lot of conservatives who have responded to this uh, very worrisome collusion between big government and big tech by saying, "Well, we need our own commissions and our own bureaucracy and our own to to punish to go after these people or to change the rules." I'm like, "But that's just 
those things will eventually be used against you. It's a very, yes. it's a very like, you know, Boromir taking the ring and mm -hmm. saying, no, we must use it. Give Gondor the weapon of the enemy. <laughs> but no, the lesson is you're supposed to destroy it, not try to use it for your own ends. Yeah. You know? I, I do know. I watched, I watched Black Adam over the weekend, and there's a oh, similar kind of a... Yet. Was it good? Crown of power. Uh, it was fine. It was, it was not bad. It was a little long. But, you know. We've finally gotten around to She-Hulk. We hadn't done that one yet. How was it? I'm enjoying it. Really? Yeah, I know people got a lot of criticism, I think. Do you think uh, it was that fine. unfair Ghostbusters, it's because they're women criticism, or was oh, it actually kind of cheesy? No, it is, Oh, it's definitely cheesy. It's not my favorite, but I like the actress, Tatiana Maslany, a lot. Better or worse than, uh, oh, gosh, what's the one with the witch? And it's a series. Oh, WandaVision? WandaVision. Oh, no, it's not nearly as good as WandaVision. Okay. WandaVision was had sort of literary qualities. WandaVision is, the best. is great. Okay, all you right. You want me to do that? Before this devolves into a, a Marvel ranking, we can go there. We can go there. All right, we'll have more rising for you after this. Kanye West calls Twitter chief Elon Musk a half-Chinese nice, nice, engineered like Obama. Boom, boom. Musk <laughs> says he's taking West Comet as a compliment. <laughs> well, you shouldn't want to, I mean, you, if you have a person like that speaking, you can always block them. You don't have oh, to no, listen. I, I agree Anything with you. They say. The, the, yeah, you don't have, I agree. You don't, also I don't have to read it. Like, Correct. I'm with you. Oh, yeah. There's a thing, though, when a person is like that, that I think there's a great value in pushing back against him. And if he was a person that could learn from that, maybe there'd be a great value of yeah. him reading some of the pushback against him and altering the way he thinks. That was, of course, podcast giant Joe Rogan advocating for Kanye West to be brought back onto Twitter to, quote, learn from his mistakes. Robbie, what do you think of that suggestion? I mean, I... I don't think that's a bad impulse at all, frankly. Uh, if you believe in free speech in a kind of philosophical way, I think you have to have faith that good ideas over time win out and are persuasive. Like, if you don't think uh, uh, treating other people with humanity and grace and, like, if you don't think anti-Nazism is persuasive in the long run, then I like, you just don't believe in, I guess, like the project of liberalism at all, or the project of, well, or, or of human nature? Look, I don't know that it's completely fair. I mean, Most internet, people are bad and their views must be brutally suppressed at all costs. Okay. It's a very sad let's world not, to live Let's in. not overstate. Kanye being kicked off Twitter, I don't know, is the exact same thing as his, his opinions being brutally suppressed. I'm sure he could get on any number of TV or radio shows tomorrow and say what he wants to say, as evidenced by the whole media tour he did a month ago that culminated him and him getting kicked off Twitter in the first place. But look, I think that I think that there is something to be said about the fact that Kanye does not seem to be served by increased isolation in his personal life. Now that's none of our business. That's not Elon Musk's business. But from like a a psychological perspective, you're talking about the split from Kim. Just generally speaking, Kanye being increasingly siloed in his personal life, from social media, whatever, does not seem to be entering to his benefit. That's just my armchair perspective mm -hmm. on things. However, I think the real problem here is that none of this should be about like what would be good for Kanye's mental health or what would be good for Kanye's personal growth. The question here is whether or not Kanye should be back on the app according to some concrete, generalizable 
principles that we can all predict and be subject to equally, not based on whether or not we have a personal relationship with Elon Musk. This is what it is over and over and over again. And the problem with Kanye is that the last time he was kicked off, it was not clear what the policy violation actually was. It was clear that he was going on a world tour of doing, saying anti-Semitic things and sounding not great. Um, and then he ultimately tweeted that weird swastika star of David thing, which again, not a fan, but it's not clear that that actually violated Twitter policy. If Twitter policy changed in some way so that it was violative of Twitter policy. And so now the question about whether he can come back on is not tethered to anything concrete. If he comes back on, what does it mean for him to violate again? Is it if he tweets mm -hmm. that same thing out? Are there, you know, is it going to be actually warned about what the line actually is? You know, was he kicked off for the right reasons? Can he be brought back on and, and reined in in any, in any kind of way? I mean, it's a wild, wild west out here. So you almost expect people to violate policy again when the when when the when the conduct is so unbound, when the when the rules are so unbound. Yeah, when you have no idea what they are. Yeah. And when they can just be. Enforce, and when they're so vague that something can be a policy violation or not be a policy violation, it's just totally up to. Yeah. Plus, he's been brought back before already after apparently violating, you know, again, by what standard, who knows. So it's like, what are the rules? Like, if you get kicked off, is it like a waiting period of three months before you're allowed back on? Are you ever permanently banned? You know, what do you have to do something in the interim to earn your position back on Twitter? Do you have to make some kind of apology? Do you have to pay a certain amount to Twitter Blue? Like, what are the rules? Right. Well, and I've long thought that would be the best improvement is that not that you end content moderation, but you just you have to make it. It's better for it's better for people's mental health, frankly to know why there was an action taken against yeah. them, what that was, when it will go away, or what steps they need to take to be back in the platform's good graces. So they're not thinking, am I being suppressed? What's going on? Yes. That makes people crazy. And so many people who have been blocked or banned, even temporarily, have made that exact complaint, that they get these really vague notes. You, your, your account has been banned because mm -hmm. of blank and that it doesn't it doesn't seem to actually violate any policy then they'll get back on the app but they feel like they've been put in the penalty box for no reason at very least if you're going to be put into the penalty box you need to have a, a clear rationale so you know that you can avoid it and also have an understanding of when you can get back on and it's worth noting that okay maybe kanye and their average user doesn't really need twitter for anything other than entertainment and news but there are a lot of people who earn their livelihoods on these kinds of apps so that when YouTube deplatforms like us. people. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, Hi, it, right it, here. These, these consequences, I mean, yeah. Elon Musk making it difficult to share certain kind of links to certain other kind of platforms hurts people's mm -hmm. bottom line. Twitter is a huge platform that folks use to direct folk direct their their base to to other content that's mm -hmm. and other apps that 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 have a better space for longer form content. You know, Taking people's accounts down the way they did for a lot of uh, RT people, people like Abby Martin, who almost lost her entire catalog, but for her mother having like kind of sweetly recorded all her episodes of her podcast on CD-ROMs, like that that kind of stuff has real economic impacts. And so, for someone who is like a businessman and really prides himself on kind of supporting markets in that way, mm -hmm. I don't know. Like this seems it seems like. Rich people are playing games with each other that are based on their personal proclivities and friendships and stuff. But the lack of policy certainty is having a horrible downstream effects for people who are trying to earn a living. Well, there are editorial impacts. We had an issue yesterday, I won't get into it at great length, where uh, we, we were unclear, we, me and the 
producers of the show uh, it, were unclear whether we could play a certain clip very much relating to the news that had been played by other news channels because we didn't know how YouTube would handle us doing it because of, of the past alleged violation on our part. And it was a, we, we ended up not using material that I think it would have been beneficial for the audience to see uh, because we didn't, it, because it was unclear. It wasn't worth the risk. It, was, it yeah. wasn't worth the risk. And that is just deeply frustrating. But we, we couldn't ask someone, they wouldn't be clear with us. It's very frustrating. Yeah. Very frustrating position to be in. One other aspect of this, though, that I think doesn't get talked about enough, that Joe Rogan kind of touched on there, was the whole, well, like, no one's, let's say we leave Kanye on Twitter. No one is forcing you to consume Kanye's tweets. In fact, it is trivially easy to not see them by muting him. And we often pretend like the best solution is to come up with one set of rules that, and one set of rules that everybody has to follow is better than unclear rules that are enforced selectively and in case you're in the good graces of the new person or the old person, whoever it is. But devolving content moderation to the users is also a, a strategy, one that I think can take the sting out of a lot of these decisions. Mm -hmm. You can, let's empower users to have more of the experience that they want to have on the platform, that, that you know, help them, prompt them to make choices about what kind of content they're consuming instead of just saying, oh, we, just, we flagged this because we think this would be bad for you. Why don't you let me make that choice or the other users? And that way, because people are different and not everyone wants to have the same experience on all these platforms. Yeah, because I, I mean, I just don't think it's, it's, I don't think it's actually about people not wanting to see the content themselves. They want to right. punish folks who have beliefs that aren't like theirs. Now, I don't think there's something morally wrong with wanting to punish someone with anti-Semitic beliefs. Like, I, I completely understand and empathize with that. But the question is, who gets to decide who gets punished? And are you always going to be so confident that it's the person who has anti-Semitic beliefs or some other kind of, a, I would argue, objectively bad perspective? Or is it really not even about that? And it's about whatever negotiations Kanye and, and Musk are going through. It's about whether Alex Jones per, uh, you know, has personally offended uh, uh, Elon Musk because he's talking about dead children and, and Elon suffered that kind of a horrible loss, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. All right, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow, Rising will be back with all of the news that's fit to print. Not exactly, because <laughs> we're not a print publication, but there you go. I just said that. <laughs> all the news that's fit to speak. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Adios, amigos. <laughs> See you tomorrow.